Thank you, uh, Dave, for uh, sharing about your family and for reading for us. Job chapter 19, and as we heard Dave read, he says in verse 23, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll. I wonder if Job realized that his words would become part of the Holy Scripture. We're beginning our new series called Living Hope. We're going to be talking about various passages from Scripture that speak to us about end times events. We wanted to uh, take passages from all around the Scripture, and I would suggest that this passage is perhaps one of the most ancient in the Bible. Uh, there's evidence to believe that Job lived in the time of Abraham or the time of the patriarchs, and even though this this book of Job may have been compiled later. We don't exactly know who wrote it. Um, it seems to be a genuine story of this real man, Job, who lived long, long ago. I mentioned last week that our goal for this series is that we would see the things that Scripture brings out when it teaches us about the end times, when we have warnings and promises about the future. It's calling upon the people of God to be vigilant and diligent, to be reassured and to endure. And these are the lessons that we want to bring out, and we're going to see some of those things today in the book of Job. We're calling this message Hope in Hardship, and that's really what the book of Job is famous for. And many people go to the book of Job as, as believers because we find here a man who suffered tremendously. And in our own suffering, we find comfort uh, simply by knowing that there was other people in the past, godly people, who have suffered deep and tremendous loss in life. Uh, what is suffering? Suffering is a kind of sifting. Uh, I get this word from something that Jesus said to Peter uh, before Jesus was crucified. He told Peter that Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. And that's what we see in the story of Job, by the way. We see Satan wanting to sift Job, to shake him, to see what he was really made of, to see what was really there in his heart and in his life. And that's what suffering does in our lives as well. It, it shakes us. It sorts us as to what we truly are and what we really believe. As we suffer, we find that we either uh, respond to God either as a foe or as a father. And that is why suffering is so crucial. The Bible speaks of our suffering as a crucible, a place where we are refined when the pain of our suffering and the heat and the hardship that we go through actually purifies us and purifies our faith and our character. And that's what we see as well in the book of Job. So some of you are very familiar with the book of Job, maybe some of you not so much, but, but here's the story in a nutshell. Job, this ancient man, perhaps from the time of Abraham, was described as a righteous man, a godly man, and he was also a very wealthy man. And uh, as Job is introduced, next we have a scene from the throne room of heaven where Satan appears before God, and God says to Satan, have you, have you seen my servant Job, how godly he is? Satan, of course, being God's enemy and the enemy of humanity, wanting to destroy, wanting to drive a wedge between God and humanity. And Satan responds by saying that it's because of Job's wealth. It's because you bless him. That's why he trusts you and follows you. 
He accuses Job of having false motives. He says the only reason Job is faithful is because you give him all these good things. Take those things away. He won't trust you. He won't honor you. So God gives Satan permission to afflict Job, and he loses his wealth, his possessions. He loses his children, and then later on he loses his health, and he's covered in sores and boils, and his life is, is on the verge of the grave. And yet we find that Job maintains his integrity through all of this suffering until his friends come. He has three friends who come, and they, they, first of all, they sit with him, and they, uh, they empathize with him in his suffering. And that goes really well until they begin to try and help Job verbally. They try to explain to Job and get him to see that surely he must have sinned in some way. That's why he's suffering these things. They accuse him of being evil and wicked. And this makes Job bitter. He's bitter towards his friends, and he becomes very bitter towards God, which ultimately leads to, to God rebuking Job, telling him to stand up like a man and answer questions before God, almost uh, like the, the judgment seat of God. And then God rebukes the friends of Job. He says, you haven't spoken of me properly. And in the end, Job repents. Uh, he reaffirms his faith in God. And in this story, his prosperity is restored and God blesses him once again. So what is this book? What is, what is going on here? I, I believe the book of Job is a real life story. Job was a real person who lived. And yet the retelling of this story, I would suggest, is like a parable much like the parables that Jesus told. A true story, but one that's meant to provide meaning and information for us as the followers of Christ. Three uh, or four things here that we can see are important truths in this parable. Number one, we learn about God and his sovereignty. We learn about his holiness. We learn that he alone sits on the throne of the universe. He is God and we are not. We learn about spiritual warfare. We hear this dialogue between God and Satan. We see Satan, as I said, trying to drive this wedge between God and humanity. We learn about human suffering, and we wrestle with that, and we see Job wrestling with that. And then I would suggest, we see in this story a parable, a story of redemption. And by the way, that's, that's the story of the Bible. So there's a sense in which the book of Job and the story of Job provides us a little mini story of the big story, a snapshot of the whole. The Bible is a book of redemption. It tells the story of redemption. And Job tells us a story of redemption. How do we see that? Think about the comparisons, the similarities between the story of Job and the story of humanity in general. The story of humanity begins with innocence, with humanity living under the blessing of God, just like the story of Job, a man who's described as innocent or righteous living under the blessing of God. Then in both stories, the story of Job and the story of redemption, we have satanic opposition. We have God's enemy, our enemy, Satan, entering into the story and imposing himself into the story to try and thwart the purposes of God. Then we have the loss of blessing, and these two things are in different order. In the big redemption story, Adam and Eve first sin, and then they lose their blessing with God. In the story of Job, these things are reversed. He loses the blessing of God, and then we find, as he 
as he becomes bitter and he accuses God and questions God, tries to justify himself over God, the, the text tells us. There's this loss of innocence. The man who was known as righteous now has to stand and answer to God. We see human discord. The result in the main uh, redemption story of the Bible, we have uh, human beings fighting against human beings. We see that in the story of Job. Job contending with these so-called friends. And then at the end of the story, we have blessing restored. And I love this last part. We have in the story of Job, we have Job making an offering for his friends. He becomes a mediator for his friends between them and God. And that's true in the story of redemption. I love that because that's what we are to be in this moment in history. We as the people of God are now to contend, to pray for, to witness to people, uh, to stand between unbelievers and God, to bring them together in reconciliation. And so there are so many similarities between the story of Job and the grand story of redemption in the Bible. We see that in a pinnacle kind of way in these verses that Dave read for us in Job 19. If you were to read through the book of Job, and of course we don't have time to read 42 chapters this morning, but you would hear Job contending with his friends and, and claiming his own innocence and questioning God, and, and it's a very painful dialogue. But there are moments uh, when Job's faith rises to the surface. And that's what's happening here in these verses. And primarily, I want us to see verse 25 to 27. Where in the midst of all of his suffering and all of his questioning and all of his angst against God, he says these words. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet... In my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. I can't help but wonder if, and we, we looked at this story on Good Friday, that story when Jesus, after he rose from the dead and he comes alongside those two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus and they're distraught and discouraged, they've lost all hope. Uh, they, they say, we used to think that Jesus was, uh, was, was going to be uh, the hope of Israel, but now he's been crucified. And Jesus comes along, and he begins to explain to them the Old Testament scriptures and help them to see how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus over and over. And I can't help but think, surely Jesus must have brought up the story of Job and perhaps even mentioned these verses and this Faith, this hope of Job, even in his hardship bubbling to the surface, where in the midst of his pain and confusion, he makes a declaration that I would suggest we need to be able to make in our own lives. As we go through our suffering, as we wrestle through life in this broken world, as we wait for the moment when we will stand before God, when we will be uh, fully redeemed and restored in his presence. These are words that need to be our own. Can you say them? I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, I know in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. 
And yeah, Dave Vandermullen can say this too, can he? So cool that we had a man who can't now see, read these words for us. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. What I want us to see, three things. Three things from these three verses that Job could say in confidence. Things that we need to be able to say as we look to the future, as we, uh, as we have this hope for the future as we get closer and closer to the last days. We don't know how close we are, but we know that every day it gets closer. We can say these words. We need to have these words and these truths as our own. So let's see them. Three things. Three things that were true of Job. Three things that he could say. Three things that I want us to be able to say. Number one, he could say this. I know my Redeemer lives. I know my Redeemer lives. Now, what was he referring to here? And I'm going to show us in a, in a few minutes that I'm not sure that Job fully knew uh, the, the reality of the words that he was saying. We look back in history and we hear Job say these things. And now we know the history of Jesus and of redemption and, and this whole story. Job didn't know all those things. So what was he crying out for when he said, I know my Redeemer lives? A Redeemer is kind of like the book of Ruth. If you are familiar with the book of Ruth, Boaz acts as a Redeemer for Ruth and for Naomi. He's someone who stands between two parties. It's a little bit like a lawyer, a representative. The Redeemer is a mediator who stands between God and me. And Job can say, I know, in the midst of his hardship, and remember, Job had a very intimate relationship with God, to whatever degree he could have back in those ancient days. Somehow, God had revealed truths to him. We don't know what Job knew of God or, or if he had any scripture at that time, but he had this relationship with God, and he had great confidence in God, and so he could say this. And he may have been wondering if within the throne room of heaven there was someone, just as Satan had appeared before God and stood between Job and God and made accusations against Job and God, perhaps Job thought there was some other intermediary, someone else who would stand before him to act as his lawyer, his representative to God, to plead his case, to, to show God and remind God that this man is worthy of your blessing. This man is a good man. This man is an innocent man. Of course, we look back on the story of history and with the full counsel of God, we know that Job was not an innocent man in the sense of being sinless. We know that we certainly are not sinless people. In fact, we have this problem. We, we understand in the story of redemption that uh, that, that God is holy and pure and we are not. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, we have no means of restoring a relationship with God in our own righteousness because we aren't righteous. We too need someone to stand between us and God. I don't know what Job meant. I don't know if he believed that some angelic being would be this mediator uh, or that there would be a person somewhere in the world or if he understood something about, 
about a divine person who would someday come. I'm not sure if he understood that. But these words, of course, are so prophetic, so powerful. I know my Redeemer lives. Did you know that God wants us to have assurance about our standing with him? We know that especially from uh, the letter of 1 John. John tells us within that letter, in those five chapters, the reason that he wrote that letter. And he says, I've written these things that you might know that you have eternal life. God's intention for his children is that we would have assurance, the kind of assurance that Job has here, that we would be assured that we could say as well, I know I know I belong to God. I know I'm saved. I know I'm a child of God. And of course, we can have that kind of assurance, not because we muster it up in ourselves, not because we're placing confidence in our own righteousness, but we can be assured because of what the Bible tells us. We can be assured when we place our faith and confidence, not in ourselves, which is actually what Job was doing, But when we place our confidence in God and in our Savior Jesus, in his righteousness, in his sacrifice for us, when we place our confidence in those things, then we can say with Scripture, I know. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know I have been redeemed. I know there is a day coming when I will be brought into the presence of Christ and of God. I know. But here's the problem. Many of us struggle with this, and we, we're waiting to feel assured. And that's where we struggle, because we, we want to come to this place where we just feel like it's true, and for some of us, time doesn't come. Maybe because of our personality, we just struggle with certainty. Maybe because of our experiences or our suffering, we struggle with certainty. We wait for a time when we will feel, when we perhaps can be as certain as the things that we see before our eyes. We want that now, but we can't have that now. And yet, God's purpose for us is that we would know. How can that be? We can know with absolute certainty through the eyes of faith. We can know when we take the word and the promises of God and we choose to believe that they're true, we can know when we make them our own, when we make them personal, when we rest the weight of our lives upon Christ and what he's done and what he's promised. You see, knowing isn't a feeling that we wait for, that we hope to have someday a feeling that comes like the feelings that we have when we actually see something before our eyes, we can know by choosing to believe what God has said. Don't wait for a feeling. Choose. Choose to believe what God has promised. We, of course, have so many more promises. We know so much more about God's plan of redemption. We know, we look back now, into history and with the word of God we see who Jesus is and what he's done for us we have so much to be assured of we too can know we too can be assured so here's the first thing we need to know 
know that our Redeemer lives. Be assured of that. Number two is this. I will see God. Now this is a little bit bizarre if you look at the language in verse 26. After my skin has been destroyed. My understanding here is Job's talking literally about the decomposition of his body. Some say, oh, it's because he had this skin condition and he's scraping you know, the, the, his skin and the scabs off his skin. I think what he's saying here, he's, he's talking about the destruction of his body in the grave, in the decomposition process. When his skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I mean, this, this is absolutely remarkable. And again, maybe God had revealed things to Job uh, we, we look at this and we feel like, well, this is exactly what we believe as Christians. All these thousands of years later, we know that these things are true for us as the followers of Jesus. But somehow Job knew, or at least he said these words. Maybe he didn't even fully understand. But he could say, after my body, my physical body is in decomposition, I will see God in my flesh. Remarkable for two reasons. First of all, it's remarkable because Scripture often tells us that seeing God is not something that we as human beings are capable of. And secondly, it's remarkable because did Job believe that his body would somehow be resurrected? Did he understand that truth? Maybe he did. That, of course, is the story of Scripture. The ultimate plan of redemption is that the people of God, even after these bodies are destroyed and we die, and our, these bodies are decomposed, there will be another body, a glorified body, and that we will actually spend eternity with Christ, not, not as angels floating around on clouds with harps, but as human beings, embodied human beings. Now those bodies are going to be remarkable. The Bible says that our bodies are going to be like the resurrected body of Jesus. He could walk through walls. He could just show up. But he could also eat, which I love. What are those bodies that we don't know? But they're going to be, they're going to be human bodies. How did Job know that? How could he say this? We don't know how he knew this, but he proclaimed it with great certainty, I will see God. So let's start with that one. What does the Bible say about us seeing God? You might remember what God said to, uh, to Moses when Moses asked to see the glory of God. God says, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And John wrote about this too. He said, no one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is one of the, the beautiful graces of God, that in Christ, and Jesus would say this to his disciples in chapter 14 of John, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that Jesus uh, was, was a visible expression of God. That's God's grace. 1 Timothy 6, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in inapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. And yet, the story of redemption tells us in no uncertain terms that the people of God will see God. 
And when we read about that eternal city that I mentioned last week in Revelation 21, and when we read in Revelation 22, which is like a description of a a new and better Garden of Eden where there's a river and the tree of life, the people of God will dwell in the presence of God. Revelation 21 says that it's God who wipes the tears from from our what? Our eyes. We will see Him as He graciously wipes those tears. We will see His face. Somehow, God and Christ, the radiance of that eternal place where we will dwell with Him. This is the grace of God. You know what? As human beings, we are absolutely unworthy to see God. And what Scripture tells us What God said to Moses, no one can see me and live, that is absolutely true. Three disciples for a moment had a chance to witness Jesus in the glory of God. One of the gospels says they they became like dead people. They, They just could not, they could not fathom, they could not manage that sight. If we saw God in all his glory, we would be consumed, and yet the grace of God, the story of redemption is... I'm going to bring these people all the way back. They are going to dwell with me. That's the story. Somehow Job could declare with confidence, I will see God. How how could Job say these things? I want to show you just two examples from Scripture. And this is actually true, I think, of a lot of Old Testament prophecy, where the prophets say things about the future and say things about Jesus that I'm, I'm certain they did not fully understand. Here's an example, actually, from the Gospel of John. This is the high priest. He says this, when they're talking about arresting Jesus and and putting Jesus to death, this is their scheme, this is the Sanhedrin scheming about what they're going to do to Jesus. And the high priest says, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now, that's a very prophetic thing to say, as John's going to point out. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. It goes on to say Jesus would die for all the nations. So here's the high priest saying something prophetic. And he's the enemy of Christ, and he's, he's wanting to destroy Christ, and yet God in his sovereignty takes the words of the enemy of Jesus and spins them around and makes them true. Same thing happens in the next chapter in John when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this donkey and the people are crying out, Hosanna, and, and speaking of Jesus as though he's the son of David. And then it says in this verse, his disciples did not understand these things. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. In other words, Jesus is riding in triumphantly as the king of Israel and and the people who were saying those things and doing those things and laying their their clothes before him and waving palm branches didn't even fully understand what they were doing and what they were saying. And I suspect there's truth of that in the story of Job when he says, I know my Redeemer lives. Did he know about Jesus? I'm not sure. He certainly didn't know what we know. When he says, I will see God, did he know the full story of redemption the way we do? I don't think so. And and actually, that, that is such a challenge for us. Because we know as followers of Jesus, he's told us so much about this redemption story and his plan and the future 
in all of the blessings of God that we now have. And my question for us, my challenge for us, is how much do we live in that knowledge? I know that my Redeemer lives. How confident are we that we will see God? How often as we go through our days do we think about that time that is soon to come when we will see him face to face? And that brings us to our third lesson from the story of Job. First of all, he knew that his Redeemer lived. Secondly, he, he was confident that he would see God. And then this final word from the end of verse 27, my heart yearns, yearns within me. Now Job, I'm sure, was saying this out of the depth of agony. He had lost his children, lost everything. His life was, uh, was on the verge of, of death. And so he could say out of that pain that his heart yearns for a time when he will be vindicated, when some mediator will come and stand between him and God, when he will see God when everything will be made right, he can say that he yearns for that. I wonder what we yearn for. It's amazing how often the New Testament speaks about us yearning for the coming of the Lord. Is that what we yearn for? My fear for myself, for all of us as we live in, uh, in an affluent society and culture where we have material wealth and I know probably a lot of us you know we hear those words and we think well I'm not I'm not wealthy we compare ourselves to people all around us who are buying homes for a million dollars and we think well I'm not rich but actually in comparison to most of the people who live on this globe we are wealthy all of us we have so much I'm so thankful for the opportunities I've had to go to places like Haiti and like Nairobi to walk through slums where our brothers and sisters live in 10 by 10 metal huts. That's their home. They live in there with multiple children. That's, that's where they raise their family. So many people in the world struggling to live on a dollar a day or ten dollars a week we are the wealthiest people in the world what is it that we yearn for and one of the dangers in us having so much is that we actually yearn for more of what we already have I mean I can say when I was growing up as a kid we, we heard a lot of preaching about end times and and I found it actually quite disturbing. And I would, I would say that in my immaturity as, as, as a young teenage boy and as a, in my immaturity as a Christian, I, I didn't want that. I didn't want Jesus to come back. I wanted to experience life. I wanted to get married. I wanted to have a job. I wanted to have my own truck. I, I, there was all kinds of things that I wanted out of this world, I was yearning and longing, not for Jesus, to my shame. And sadly, that's still true of me. Can you imagine lately, I just yearn for this pandemic to be over. 
for the restrictions to be able to be lifted. And this, of course, is one of the blessings that God has allowed this difficult last year and a half and will continue to be challenging for the weeks ahead. This is one of the reasons that God has so graciously allowed this is to loosen our grip on this world and our hope for this world and our yearning for the things of this world because he's reminding us this world, there's no hope here. There's no lasting pleasure here. There's no lasting security here. And the pandemic has reminded us of that. God has been gracious. In fact, that's why so much of what we struggle with and suffer in life is actually a gift from God. And yeah, we've got a number of people in our church family that are going through hardship and uncertainty and physical uh, health challenges and, uh, and all kinds of things. We say, God, why would you allow this? And one of his graces in allowing us to suffer is that we would loosen our grip on our hopes for this world and the things that we could get out of this world that he would remind us that the thing that we ought to long for and yearn for is a world that is yet to come and primarily that we will see Jesus and live and dwell with Jesus in glory. We will see his glory. We will share to some degree in his glory. That's what we are to yearn for as believers. But as I've wrestled with these truths myself this week, I've realized it's not really what I've been yearning for. I want security in this life. I, I want to feel at ease. I want to be able to visit my friends and I want an end to this hardship. But Job, out of the depth of his suffering and pain and misery, could say, I know my Redeemer lives. I know I will see God. And my heart yearns for those things. Isn't it amazing that when he says my heart yearns, he's not talking about I want my kids back. I want my camels back. I want my health back. His yearning is for this mediator his yearning is to see God. Is that true for us? Notice how often Scripture points to this. This truth that God would have us as his children yearn for his coming. Luke 12, 37, Blessed are those servants whom the Master, when he comes, will find watching. Philippians 3, 20, We eagerly wait for the Savior. Romans 8.23, we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. 1 Timothy 4, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who love his appearing. 1 Peter 3.12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, and then the second last verse of the Bible, this simple prayer, Revelation 22, verse 20. Come, Lord Jesus, come. I want you more than I want a new truck. I want you more than I want a bigger house. I want you more than I want ease and prosperity and comfort. I want you, Jesus. So Job this ancient figure who surely didn't know 
so much of what we know could make statements that should be true of us that we should make that we know our Redeemer lives. This is the great hope that Scripture describes. We know that the mediator has already stood on the earth. Those words of Job. I know my, I know my Redeemer lives. In the end, he will stand on the earth. He's already stood on the earth. The hope of end times teaching in the Bible is that Jesus is going to come back and stand on this earth. He's going to rule. Is this our hope? I will see God by His grace through the gospel. I will see God and my heart yearns for these things. As we approach the end times teaching of Scripture, there are lots of different views represented, yes, even in our own congregation, different views represented within our elders team here at Wallenstein Bible Chapel, different views in terms of how things might exactly play out and the timing of various things. But I want you to be aware of this fact that when Scripture speaks to the people of God about the future, there are many warnings about suffering and about hardship. And whatever your view is on the order of end times, we have to reckon with these realities. This is the way Scripture speaks of the followers of Jesus, of the people of God, and, and the potential of suffering in days ahead. Jesus saying to his disciples by proxy to all of us, you will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Matthew 24, verses 22 and 24, if those days had not been cut short, no, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, that's the people of God, those days will be shortened. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Do you hear that? The people of God are going to face hardship in the end times. Jesus promised it in John 16. In this world, you will have trouble. Paul and Barnabas spoke of it in Acts 14 to the new believers that they were winning to Christ. They said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul spoke of it in Romans 8. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. My challenge for us as we consider the end times is this. Are we arming ourselves with the truths of God's promises? With our confidence about what we know about redemption, what we know about Jesus, what we know about our eternal security, our longing to see Jesus to be with Christ, are those things arming us and strengthening us in our faith so that we can persevere through whatever challenges will come upon us? Our North American experience of Christianity has not been the norm. And there are believers all around the world today who have suffered immensely. Yes, some even today will lose their lives. They will be martyred for Christ. Our experience in North America has not been the norm. We have been blessed with not just prosperity, but with security. The freedom to believe what we choose to believe. The freedom to share our faith with others. Those freedoms may not last. 
And it's our faith, it's our assurance of what God is promising us for the future that will enable us to endure whatever it is, whatever it is that we have to face and go through before the Lord comes for us, are we ready and able to endure? Some of us already suffering in various ways and going through hardship. These things train us and prepare us for whatever suffering we may have to endure that's still to come. God is refining us. God is sifting us. God is burning off the dross of our life. Those false loves, those things that we worship that we ought not to worship. God is uh, is peeling our fingers off of those things that we hold to even as we go through hardship. Listen to the words of Peter as he wrote to Christians who were suffering and soon to suffer more. Listen to this. Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Do you hear what he's saying there? Do you want to have ammunition in the Christian life? Do you want to be armed and ready for spiritual battle in the Christian life? Here's what you do. Accept and embrace this idea that just as Jesus suffered in his body, I am willing to suffer in my body in whatever way the Lord might choose. Now, we don't go looking for this. We're not trying to create suffering by doing foolish things. But we're simply saying, Jesus, I take up my cross and follow you, whatever that means in my life. I will obey you in my life. Whatever that means, I'm willing to suffer. He says, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Do you see this? In other words, this is where Christian maturity is found. When I'm willing to deny myself and die to myself, when I'm willing to face suffering, it ratchets up my maturity, it ratchets up my holiness because my life is increasingly surrendered to God. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. This is an attitude shift. And here's what Peter's saying. The more ready we are as the followers of Jesus to accept suffering, the more faithful we can be in obeying him and in representing him in this broken world. I know this is a hard word. And one of the beauties of being part of a church family is that to whatever degree we suffer, whatever, whatever the future holds for us, we have each other and we don't walk alone and if we could hear the testimonies of Christians in China who've been saved and grown up in the underground church under a communist regime we would hear story after story of how God has strengthened and enabled them to endure through his people and through the fellowship of God's people we have the word of God we have the promises of God we can say based on God's promises that we know our Redeemer lives, that we know we will see him. We have this future hope and we arm ourselves with this as well. I can endure today because of what's coming tomorrow. I can get through this. I mean, we do this every day. We get through the morning because we know break time's coming. 
we endure those busy evenings with our tiny kids and our little family and because we know bedtime's coming. That's how we get through life. We, we endure now because of a hope of the future. That's the teaching of Scripture. We have that as believers. And most of all, we have Christ himself who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So whatever it is we endure and for suffering now with health or different things that we're dealing with right now, we do not endure these things alone. And so we can endure and we will endure. Whatever it is that we will have to suffer in this life, we will by the grace of God. And we remember those words of Paul, our suffering now cannot compare to the glory that's to come. Let's take a few minutes to sing to fill our hearts and minds with hope and faith as we consider these truths and then I'm going to come again and we're going to read one final scripture together. So let's sing. Amen. Through the storm, through the fire, there's truth that sets me free, Jesus Christ who lives in me. I hope these three things that we've seen from the life of Job can be true of us that we know our Redeemer lives. Jesus, the God-man, is the one who came to stand between us and God to reconcile us to God. He did that through his death, through his sacrifice. And because of that, if we know him, if we've trusted in Christ for salvation, we can say we know that we will see God. And my hope for us is that increasingly our heart will yearn for these truths, about who he is and what our future holds with him. If you've never trusted in Christ, I, I just hope and pray that you might do that today. As we close, I want us to read these words together and let me just remind you again about the opportunity to uh, come on Zoom. And I realize uh, some of what we've talked about today is challenging and uh, I just love to, uh, to be a pastor as you wrestle through those things and, um, and I wrestle through them with you. So if you wanna come on Zoom, to chat about any of these things, please, uh, please do so. In closing, I'm not sure if you can see these words, uh, but I want us to read these together if you're able to. Uh, this will be our closing prayer and, and benediction. This is from 1 Peter 1. Notice the hope that we have. Notice the references here uh, to suffering. Notice the references here to the return of Jesus and the hope that we have of the future. So let's close with these words. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 8. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him 
and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Amen. May God be with you.